I'm Ben Weingarten. I'm Ines Stepman. I'm John Tamer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, well, as per usual, we've got four very diverse and hopefully compelling topics to address today. Josh is going to kick us off with the uh, just demoralizing episode, to put it mildly, at Stanford with the shouting, Stanford Law, with the shouting down of a federal judge. Uh, Inez is going to talk to us a bit about life under the uh, tyrannical feminist-controlled bureaucracy of the academy today. I'll talk a little bit about the Federal Trade Commission's apparent harassment of Elon Musk over his purchase of Twitter. And last but not least, Emily will take us home with some talks about the Oscars. So with that, let's turn over to Josh. Okay, so good to be back with you guys. I wish that I were in happier spirits today. This past four to five days has been absolutely demoralizing. Uh, shameless plug before I get into what I'm about to say. I do have a solo episode of my own Newsweek podcast on this exact topic, so go ahead and check that out. But we are talking here about what happened to Judge Kyle Duncan, who was a sitting judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit last Thursday at Stanford Law School. So he was invited out to speak to the Stanford Law School Federal Society, which, of course, is the well-known conservative libertarian-leaning legal organization operates on campuses. I personally do any number of FedSoc talks in a given year. I, I know Judge Duncan personally quite well, so I was actually one of uh, Judge Jim Ho's first four, first four law clerks back in 2018. Judge Ho and Judge Duncan are Fifth Circuit colleagues. They ascended to the court the same year. I've stayed in good touch with, with Judge Duncan ever since then, and actually to this day, literally this probably the single piece of writing that I get most often protested for is a short little national review piece that I wrote in January 2020, defending an opinion that Judge Duncan wrote for the Fifth Circuit in a case called U.S. versus Varner, where he refused to indulge uh, the use of transgender pronouns. So all that with with all that being said, Judge Duncan, who is obviously kind of a a right leaning jurist, but to, to clarify, by no means, uh, you know, across the board uh, to be, you know, it, 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 with full candor here, I actually disagree with a lot of Judge Duncan's rulings, at least those that I have seen when it comes to kind of qualified immunity, even kind of Sixth Amendment issues. I, I have some difference of opinions when it comes to some criminal law issues, but he's obviously a right leaning jurist. So he gets invited to speak out to Stanford Law School last Thursday. And he, the topic of his talk is purportedly about COVID, Twitter, and guns, uh, basically kind of what's going on on, on on the Fifth Circuit on those topics. Long story short, it is a total crap show from start to finish. They are protesting him from the second he gets there. And he is effectively unable, not effectively, he is unable to get his talk in. So the video of this has gone viral. You can watch it basically everywhere on Twitter. The president of Stanford, uh, FedSoc, a guy named Tim Rosenberger, was recently on Tucker Carlson to explain it. So this is getting some attention within, within conservative media, at least. And what happened in the classroom when Judge Duncan got there, the right-leaning students who organized this event were just completely numerically outnumbered and overwhelmed by the left-leaning mini Robespierre's, uh, the various kind of affinity groups, your LGBT student groups, your immigration student groups, uh, all that stuff. And you can see the signs they are holding. These are like juvenile playground insult signs. Um, I, again, I personally have experienced this to a lesser extent. I've been protested with juvenile signs too. The key difference here is that they were not 
silently protesting. They were not silently protesting. They Every second or third word out of Judge Duncan's mouth, they were shouting him down. He was totally unable to get his thoughts out. And the arguably worst case of this entire sordid saga, and it is a very, very sordid tale, is that after he finally, Judge Duncan finally kind of urged administrators to kind of get involved here to secure his his ability to speak freely upon his traveling out there at the invitation of Stanford Fedsock, the DEI dean, this wretched, abominable excuse of an administrator named Tyrion Steinbach, gets up there and reads what is clearly a, a, a prepared statement that sides entirely with the protesters. And she basically says, uh, the line that's getting a lot of attention is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Meaning, yes, you have a technical right to be here and a purported right to speak freely, but is what you have to say so worthwhile to justify the harm that your mere presence is doing? Uh, Stanford Fed, Stanford Law School, for its worth, is, is the second-ranked law school in the United States of America. It, it is one of the, it is in theory one of the leading paragons of legal uh, of legal education. This follows on the heels of my former boss, Judge Jim Ho's announced boycott of hiring law clerks from Yale Law School over their own completely inhospitable on-campus free speech policies. At the end of the event, Judge Duncan was escorted out by U.S. federal marshals, one of whom, according to Raj Rare Substack, uh, told Judge Duncan, wow, I've never seen anything like that in my life. So it is a horrific, horrific event. Um, in my opinion, it, it, it should be. It should be. I'm not predicting that it will be. I'm saying that it should be a turning point in the campus wars because, again, me, Ilya Shapiro, a million other people who have experienced this in person, I, I think this is the worst. And it is the worst because he was shouted down. He was not just soundly protested. And he is a federal appellate judge. There are under 200 of these people in the country. And it's a second-ranked law school in the country. If you are unable to listen, to listen and engage in reasoned discourse, let alone with a federal appellate judge, what the hell are you doing in law school? These people should all be presumptively disbarred, not admitted to the bar. Every single person who, who, who was engaged in this, the DEI dean should certainly be fired. I think it's ridiculous that she was not fired already. And the final word that I'll say is what I would like to see happen is if judges now start to add Stanford Law School along with Yale Law School to the list of institutions whose law clerks should be boycotted, similar to what my former boss, Judge Ho, has done to Yale. But I've taken up a lot of time here. Um, terrible, terrible, terrible story. I really don't know how else to describe it, but I'm eager to hear your thoughts on it. Well, you know, it, one thing that strikes me is uh, as a graduate of Columbia, when I was there, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad was invited to speak on campus, and he was able to speak at far greater length uh, than a federal judge at Stanford Law School. Um, and I think that says it all. Whether this is kind of the tipping point and this is the worst it's going to get, uh, I know, Josh, you're, what you're saying is this should be a tipping point. Uh, I find it hard to believe that it will be because what you see is now administrators, in this case, the DEI dean. And of course, you know, God forbid there was a DEI dean that actually believed in free speech, but obviously they don't, which tells you all you need to know about these deans. These are the administrators that increasingly control all of these schools. And consequently, they are going to permit this kind of action under this belief that speech that they don't like constitutes violence. And consequently, you're allowed to deal with that in kind. Uh, that's, that is the ethos that prevails on campus. That's how you get to you know, what I'll talk about a bit and which we talk about almost every week, the sort of censorship industrial complex, as Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger called it during a weaponization committee hearing uh, the week before we recorded this. 
So it prevails across the commanding heights of our society. The fact that it's law students and a judge that we're talking about here is particularly pathetic, sad, and disgraceful. But, you know, we can we can look back to any number of incidents like this, you know, at Middlebury when Heather McDonald and Charles Murray were attacked, and that was six years ago now. So uh, I suspect it's only going to get worse. The hysteria is only going to ratchet up to the nth degree. And there's a real question here for Stanford of, you know, to the more senior officers there, what are you going to do to rectify this? Is this DEI dean going to be fired? And could you replace that DEI dean with any other DEI dean if you're going to have that bureaucracy in place that is going to have a pro-free speech mentality? That said, you know, the candor of that dean to admit that this falls under the idea of, well, speech that we don't like is harm. Uh, and by the way, that not everyone on the staff, she sort of let slip in her remark, believes in free speech absolutely, when obviously, you know, of course, we, I think, probably all agree that there are certain limits to free speech. And the founders believed there were limits to speech as well. But nevertheless, I think she let slip very clearly the mask. And what is this going to augur for law and order in this country? And the last point I'll make is, you know, these are the exact people who will matriculate ultimately and be the administrative state saboteurs, the administrative state uh, resistance uh, in any future Republican, let alone conservative administrations. These are the exact people who are going to be in roles of power, uh, working to undermine liberty and justice in this country. And as I was uh, waiting for you, because you're actually a lawyer here, but I'll quickly before tossing to you say, um, actually, this will bring our show full circle with the Oscar segment at the end, because one thing to keep in mind, and Inez talks about this a lot, is that our institutions have already imported a whole lot of this poison into the workforce, and there is no like effective antidote. And so our institutions, as much as we like to think that this is uh, this behavior was really at its uh, height, and I think it was, I, mean, I think it did hit a, a sort of fever pitch in uh, the Trump administration. You know, you don't see the same stuff every week, um, and that's not just for lack of media coverage. It it actually has calmed a little bit, maybe because COVID sort of uh, literally dampened the mood on some of these campuses. But um, you know, the, this is a great example of people at a, a top school the upper echelons of American academia, which is a, the world. Uh, this is one of the best educational institutions of the world. You, in theory, have to be one of the most qualified and intelligent people in the world um, to be going to school here. And this is how you're conducting yourself. Um, and this is how the, the institution that is uh, teaching these people is conducting itself. Um, it's not just about the small group of, you know, way too big, but relatively small group of students. It's also about how they were handled by the school. So with that, I'll toss to you, Ines. Thanks, Emily. Um, and for the record, everyone's gonna have to tolerate me chewing on this uh, this cough drop, otherwise you'll hear me hacking. So that's <laughs> apologies for that. But um, so two points on this. One, never, ever forget, as Emily just alluded to, these students will run the DOJ, right? Um, they'll prevent their Y2 law firms from taking on undesirable, quote unquote, clients, right? There is no way to operate a system of the rule of law or anything in the Anglo-American tradition when the top, the graduates of top law schools behave this way, Um of course, there was in this case, there was a quote unquote apology from the administration afterwards, but suspiciously devoid of any actual concrete steps like firing this DEI dean, right? Um, 
I just want to make one comparison personally. When when I was in law school in 2015, um, there was a FedSoc event with uh, Heather McDonald, among others, as FedSoc usually does. They balance both sides of, of the legal debate um, on Title IX. And there was this kind of ridiculous protest. Uh, in fact, the students went around taking photos of everybody who was there. And the clear implication was, oh, we're going to try to get you fired from your summer jobs, right? We're going to try to get you fired from your placements after law school by saying that you're undesirable for having attended this event on Title IX. Um, but there, even in 2015, to see the evolution of this thing, um, the administration actually forced those students to send an apology to the rest of the class um, for that behavior. So there was still like the, the, the only difference between 2015 and now is how much power institutionally these people have gotten. This ideology has gotten. It's not that it was any less crazy in 2015. And for that matter, that the this kind of radical left was any less crazy in 1990. It's just that they did not have the kind of institutional power that they now have. Um, and that's why everything seemed to flip so suddenly, quote unquote, in topsy turvy um, in these institutions. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, so this transitions really well to my subject, um, because this woman, I think, this DEI dean, um, really embodies this, um, uh, what Chris Rufo wrote about is following up on a discussion in his Substack um, on on what uh, Lomez uh, wrote in First Things um, and Heather McDonald wrote in City Journal about the feminization of academia. Lomez wrote about the what Longhouse, which is much broader than academia. Um, but I think it's, it's and then Rufo follows up um, with some of his experiences essentially being sent in to uh, uh, these academic institutions in the state of Florida, right? Um, and, and kind of having the power to try to reform them. Um, but he, he makes some, some really great points about the feminization of academia, right? The vast majority now um, of, of undergraduate degrees go to women. Um, the, the majority of higher degrees go to women with the exception, there's a couple exceptions in there, but um, PhDs, masters, and um, undergrad degrees all go disproportionately to women now. Um, and he says basically that this has created on campus, following up on what Heather McDonald said, um, an, an atmosphere, sort of feminized atmosphere, where competition, truth-seeking, and and debate are uh, downplayed in favor of, of um, a kind of therapeutic environment where people's feelings are the most important thing um, to protect. And and he, he seems to point to the fact that um, this sort of feminized bureaucracy is a little bit inevitable. Um, I, I want to add a couple other points to what Rufo made uh, in his excellent Substack, which I think everyone should read. Um, but this this woman really in this this uh, situation really embodies this, right? She's standing there, she's silencing a federal judge, um, and she's basically coming in on the side of protesters who cannot control themselves, cannot control their emotions. Um, and she says, I'm so uncomfortable. I'm so uncomfortable being here as she's exercising power, right? Um, and I think there is nothing more emblematic of this kind of feminized bureaucratic power than that, right? The the authority lines um, are obscured. It, power as it's exercised is never direct. There's no direct accountability, right? Everyone has had the experience 
um in the dmv right of going to to one employee and being told well you didn't fill out this form correctly and then you go to the other employee and they say well you you actually need to fill it out this other way right there's there's um the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing but there's no clear accountability there's nobody you can go to that says okay here's what you need here are the steps you need to take right because there's no none of those clear lines um and I think this really demonstrates within the academy and and without it how the therapeutic has blended with this kind of bureaucratic apparatus um, to make this kind of like really maddening mix. I, I really think like women, uh, like the kind of behavior that this woman demonstrates is meant to drive people to violence. <laughs> um, I think it's so maddening. It it forces, uh, and then of course the left gets to point to us and say like, oh look at them, they're they're crazy, right? Um, so Judge Duncan is to be commended, but I really do think she's kind of um, she's emblematic of a certain kind of applied power. Rufo writes about it very convincingly, as I said last week. Lomez and um, Heather McDonald have also written about it. It is a particularly feminized, which does not mean it's only exercised by women. Um, it, it's also exercised by men, uh, but it's the same kind of, it's the values, feminine values that a bureaucracy protects, a certain lack of accountability, a certain systemic analysis of the way that uh, things are. In other words, it's it's never sort of, quote unquote, the buck stops here. It's always a systematic analysis, which, of course, is a key feature of, of critical theory, right? Um, anyway, uh, Rufo has put in a bunch of his own observations on top of this. I think this is a real phenomenon. I think it goes far beyond um, the the academy, especially when we consider that there are more and more managerial or bureaucratic style jobs in this economy, and our economy produces a lot of those jobs, whether they they produce value for the bottom line or not. Um, I think this is really the the shape of of the way that power is wielded increasingly in our society, and I think it's worth at analyzing as such. So with that, I'll I'll, I'll kick it out. As a working woman, uh, okay, I, I will say though that it's an interesting, um, yeah, you know, I've seen Richard Hanania write about this as well um, in different forms. And I do think the theory is interesting, especially because I remember one of my uh, internships in college was uh, helping Christina Hoff Summers at AEI work on the war against boys, uh, second the, the second publishing of it uh, back in 2014, which is a book about how we feminized education spaces in the 90s. So this is something that she originally wrote in 2000, and uh, it had been steadily happening for a really long time. When you get rid of things like recess, when you make math about feelings, um, you end up with a really tough situation incrementally um, for boys who end up having disciplinary problems at levels that they probably shouldn't be and have a hard time focusing. And so you can see where this sort of subtly really can creep into our culture and our society. I think of, you know, I don't know. I, I, I do think, I remember also something that around the time when uh, there was a debate as to whether Trump would pick Kavanaugh or Amy Coney Barrett, I had no dog in that fight. But I did say, you know, the, if we are as conservatives believe men and women are fundamentally biologically different, um, then we do also concede that women have perspectives about uh, political issues like uh, childbirth 
um, like carrying a, a baby in your womb, pregnancy, physical things that men can cannot have that exact same perspective on. They can have informed, rational, reasonable perspectives on it, but they cannot have the same experience. Um, and so to some extent, I think it's important and, and has been helpful for women who do want to influence our, our politics and culture to obviously have the opportunity to do that. But the overall feminization um, of a, a culture that should have a balance between feminization and masculinity. I, I think that's a real problem. I, I agree with that. I think we see it in different ways. Um, I think there are still some institutions that uh, could use a, a female voice here and there. Um, but uh, so that's where it's, this topic is a little uh, tricky, but the feminization, not just of our institutions, but of like culture overall and that masculinity is uh, has become dirty, has become a pathology. Um, whereas femininity, um, and I know I'm going really long, but I want to say one more thing. There was a, a post about Barbara Walters, a remembrance of Barbara Walters that Vanity Fair of Vogue posted on Instagram last night. And it was quotes from her peers about how wonderful Barbara Walters was. And they were all about how she was basically rude, conniving, and all of those different things. And these women were celebrating that as uh, Barbara Walters being an icon, right? So even women are being pushed to mac masculinize in order to be successful. So yeah, that's having a, a seriously negative effect on the culture. Josh, you wanna give the toxic masculine perspective? <laughs> yeah, Emily, literally, as you were saying, like I apologize for going on longer. I was thinking to myself, wow, like the longer she goes, like I will have less time for media matters to pick up my inherently sexist <laughs> remarks. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of oh, wish we segment. We over, we both overtalk. Yeah, um, <laughs> not doing ourselves any favors with the stereotype. And, and I'm totally fine with that, to be honest with you. Um, so look, um, I haven't actually read Heather's piece yet. Full disclosure, I flagged a tweet later and just haven't gotten around to it yet. I adore Heather McDonald, who, by the way, I have reason to believe is a regular listener of the show. Actually, so if you're listening, Heather, hello, and thank you for all your good work. Um, look, I mean, the differences between the sexes is obvious, and we downplay that at our immense risk of harm. Um, as Emily, I think, aptly said, um, you know, uh, masculinity has been so tarnished, you know, as folks like my former colleague, uh, Matt Walsh, remind us on a seemingly weekly basis. And when you tarnish and diminish masculinity, and if you are a man, you know, you basically have three options, I guess. The first option is to just, you know, what like I think most conservative men do, which is just ignore it and plow ahead. But if you are more of a conformist, less of a contrarian, if you're trying to more fit in with the culture, then you basically have to kind of go along and feminize yourself, for lack of a better term, and kind of stand up less for the great masculine virtues and submit to the more feminine virtues. Or tragically and alternatively, you know, you could go in a very dark, dark direction, um, you know, which is one possible cause, you know, um, I, if I'm just kind of spitballing here for the recent uptick in horrific mass shootings, which obviously have, you know, one underlying or typically have an underlying demographic similarity, you know, young men who just seem just totally lost and out of place in life. So I'll be really brief since we're over. Uh, I would just point out that a derivative conversation of this has to be, what are the consequences, the long-term consequences of a feminized academy? Uh, for social cohesion and the family, for uh, economics, for the vitality of our culture, the knock-on effects we're probably not going to see play out for decades. 
Uh, but one can only imagine many of them are going to prove ultimately detrimental, I think, to the American experiment, as opposed to having the balance that we've discussed here of both masculine and feminine virtues working hand in hand throughout our institutions. Um, so I'll transition now to a totally different topic, which is this recent report put out by the House Weaponization Committee on how the Federal Trade Commission appears to have been weaponized against Elon Musk in the period shortly after he purchased Twitter and then went about uh, admitting that he had purchased essentially a crime scene as well as a social media platform and argued that he would be devoting it to free speech, which of course we can debate uh, because I think there's still a substantial shadow banning that we see and dinging of accounts and all sorts of weird ways in which I think Twitter continues to operate. But setting that aside for a moment, this report is pretty staggering and I think speaks for itself. Essentially, the FTC started investigating Musk and Twitter under a consent decree, which was a pretext for this entire harassment effort, a de consent decree which dealt with uh, Twitter's apparent violations of user privacy in the past. And so essentially, they have to comply with demands of the FTC, presumably with relation to user privacy issues. But as we found out, in 350 plus demands, which I believe were lodged over around a 10 week period, the FTC asked for a whole slew of information that had nothing to do with user privacy, uh, including first of all, Twitter's communications with journalists who the FTC named, led by the Twitter files authors, including Michael Schellenberger, Matt Taibbi, uh, Barry Weiss, and others. In addition, they asked for all communications across every single platform, essentially, that Twitter's employees used concerning Elon Musk, including messages from and to Elon Musk himself concerning Elon Musk. And last but not least, of a slew of other demands, by the way, dealing with things even as mundane as is Twitter selling off office furniture uh, in connection with its cost-cutting plans. Again, not sure of the nexus to user privacy there. They also made demands of Twitter to explain why Twitter fired the Forrest Gump of deep state weaponization, Jim Baker. So I think this is, there are obviously any number of significant takeaways from this beyond the fact that you have an administrative state agency harassing Musk and Twitter and forcing them to comply with all sorts of egregious demands that the FTC has no business making. You know, we can talk about the communications around Elon Musk and then from and to Elon Musk. And obviously the fact that they could be digging for dirt there and maybe leak that dirt in a bid to tarnish Musk, the company, uh, subvert its efforts. With respect to the journalists, probably the most chilling part of this is the fact that who is the FTC to be asking about communications with journalists who themselves, by the way, noted several points, I think, in the Twitter files, the the methods that they took to protect, of course, the privacy of the users and much of the information that they were citing is already out in the public. Um, but obviously, there's a chilling notion of, well, these journalists are the ones who are exposing the weaponization of the administrative state hand in hand with these big tech companies. And so actually, we're going to go after the journalists. And we saw a link to this, of course, in the recent House Weaponization Committee hearings, uh, where Matt Taibbi and Michael Schellenberger were the lead witnesses, and they re revealed essentially this picture, which we've discussed at length, of a censorship industrial complex. And you had Democrat minority members 
on the House Weaponization Committee, asking them to reveal their sources, badgering them for their sources. So the Democrat members of Congress essentially acting as a mouthpieces for the FTC. Um, and then, of course, the Jim Baker aspect of this is clearly that the deep state knows its asset was burnt and thrown out, and he couldn't control the document production and the so-called vetting with respect to the Twitter files. And so they're defending their assets. Um, all of this is obviously disturbing and egregious, egregious. It's of a piece with something that we've spoken about before, which is that if you go against the war on wrong think uh, chief officers in it and battalions in it, then they are going to turn around and try and destroy you, whether you're Elon Musk or uh, former President Trump, or you're the lowliest of January 6th defendants. Uh, I'm curious what you make of the FTC's targeting of Musk, but also more broadly, you know, what we saw in that weaponization committee hearing. And last but not least, I'll just note as, as a footnote here, we've talked about how virtually every topic has become potentially censorable now. Uh, we know that in connection with the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank, that at least one senator, Mark Kelly, according to Michael Schellenberger's reporting, was advocating for asking about whether financial authorities were in touch with the social media companies and potentially censor people basically to prevent bank runs. So that's that's where we are now. It went from Russian disinformation undermining our democracy to you can't say anything on social media about a financial institution or you're going to take down the world economic system. Um, all of this picture is disturbing. I guess the last point I'll make is it's not clear that there is any accountability whatsoever, that any heads are going to roll and people are going to go to jail for imposing this regime on us. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, has to be part of the weaponization committee's efforts. And I think our efforts, if we're going to maintain anything resembling a free country here. I mean, I uh, one of like the themes we come back to on this show every so often is, you know, compare the left's reaction to X story in the year 2023 to what the left's reaction to a story might have been 30, 40 years ago. And I can actually connect this segment and these galling questions, you, you know, uh, like uh, First Amendment infringing questions, not technically legally, because Congress probably has plenary power in a, in a subpoena setting, but definitely kind of the spirit of the First Amendment. You know, I, I can draw a direct line between this and kind of the first segment about Kyle Duncan and Stanford, because Dean Steinbach, the DEI dean who was at the epicenter of this whole sordid affair at Stanford, guess who she used to work for out in the Bay Area? Well, no less a one-time bastion of free speech turned into a totalitarian organization as the ACLU itself. So look at what the ACLU has become as the organization that once in the late 1970s famously or infamously, you might say, defended the the so-called rights of neo-Nazis to to march in Skokie, Illinois, which was home, to, which was and still is home to a large Jewish population, including many Holocaust survivors, and, and you know that was kind of an absolutist, adamant free speech turned into this Dean Steinbach garbage out at Stanford. You know, and look what's going on here. I mean, you know, wasn't the left kind of like the like the New York Times, Pentagon Papers? I mean, like full transparency. I mean, like journalistic integrity at the expense of of everything else. So you, you know. Uh, 
I, I guess I just no matter how you look at it here, um, one of my big takeaways of these questions, I mean, like Debbie Wasserman Schultz, you know, who I, I think horrifically is my current congresswoman, my God, um, I, I, I moved elsewhere in Florida a few months ago. I think she's my current congresswoman. So God help me. Although I had Sheila Jackson Lee, actually, when I lived in Houston, Texas, like six or seven years ago. So not not sure which of those two is worse. But Debbie Wasserman Schultz's questions at this hearing were just so appalling. I mean, anyone who has a a shred of kind of patriotic, you know, pro-America civics in his or her DNA should have been appalled. So no matter which way you slice it, whether it's the ACLU or kind of journalistic freedom, kind of the decline of the left um, has really been something to behold. It's been interesting to watch um, Taibbi and Schellenberger, both of whom have not been naive about the left, but it's been interesting to watch them reckon with what happened in the hearing last week over the course of the last several days, just because I think even as clear eyed about the situation as they are, it caught them off guard. And um, to, to some extent, you know, if you showed somebody in 2006, um, that demonstration from the Democratic Party, you know, I think people who were paying attention to academia would probably say, well, well I can see the trajectory there. Um, but other people would just be absolutely shocked. I mean, it was this authoritarian, um, this flirtation with authoritarianism uh, that you'd think um, outside of maybe their foreign policy would be anathema uh, to the the liberal mindset. Um, and, and even in terms of posturing for their constituents, you would think it would just be incredibly embarrassing for them. Uh, but I, I do recommend reading Schellenberger and Taibbi's reactions to uh, the reactions they got last week, because it was just truly, 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 truly a huge scandal how little interest the media showed in the fact that Democrats were that hostile to to uh, journalists and it, the entire lack of media coverage on the Twitter files in general shows a glaring disinterest from behalf of the free press and from the free press on behalf of the free press. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Ben and Emily and Josh have all said basically all that I would like to say on that subject, except for a couple points. Um, one, uh, you know, Elon Musk, I think, actually made a good decision giving a lot of the Twitter files to uh, essentially disaffected left wing journalists. Um, I think that it, it's highlighting that contradiction that Emily is talking about, um, as opposed to it would have been much easier. And I'm mostly I'm not um, not in favor of sort of soft peddling. And I, I find myself increasingly at odds with a lot of the like sort of IDW left. But I think in this case, it was a really good call because it really highlighted that contradiction in the hearing. Whereas if it had been conservative media, uh, it would have been much more of a typical grandstanding, uh, you know, a YouTube opportunity for a lot of these um, a lot of these uh, congressmen and congresswomen. So um, I think in that sense, it was a good call. And the other the other point I want to bring, bring up that hasn't been yet is that Michael Schellenberger also um Hatch. He he put out a um, hack and leak roundtable participant list from 2020. So these are organizations that Schellenberger says, uh, quote, allow themselves to be programmed into violating the Pentagon Papers principle. Think twice before trusting them. This is about exposing sources and so on. Right. Um, and of course, you have all the usual suspects on this list. Right. Um, you have you have uh Facebook and and all of the the sort of tech folks you have NPR CNN the New Yorker Washington Post New York Times okay that's that's all like sort of well and good of course who else is on here Stephen Hayes the Dispatch um 
Now, it's not exactly news that the Bulwark and the Dispatch are, you know, um, are are just, I mean, their they're bread and butter uh, increasingly is, is only firing, right? Um, but I do think it's worth noting that uh, they violated, once again, all of the principles that they claim to stand for, and they're participating in an active um, essentially censorship effort th- uh, in connection um, in connection with with the government agencies right so I, I just think it's worth uh, highlighting that even though I know that they're shameless it, it's still uh, still worth pointing out I think well here's a full circle moment then we'll transition to talking about the Oscars um, that and I think there's really a thread that runs runs through the entire show here I wrote um, obviously because in my role as culture editor at the Federalist with which people are constantly asking me what that you know what exactly do you do here like from office space well once a year I'm forced to watch the Oscars against my will and um, so the the piece that I wrote this year was basically saying they're trying to get back to monoculture they're trying to get back to designing things for mass consumption in the way the Oscars really used to be. Jimmy Kimmel, um, the affable gesture of resistance boomers was toned down. Um, there was like a barb at Tucker Carlson. There was, you know, Cara Delevingne said something about people who identify as women. Um, there, there were a couple, you know, it, it was sprinkled though. The politics were sprinkled. The wokeness was kind of sprinkled on the top instead of kind of baked into the cake um, might be one way of putting it. And what that shows, I think, is the Academy knows in order to reach the biggest possible audience, it's going to have to keep a lid on um, some of the the controversial, divisive politics. And look, I think we all want our actors to be crazy artists. Um, Nobody wants their actors to be Boy Scouts or politicians because frankly, they probably won't be as good of actors if you have, you know, Johnny Depp. Um, If you're all Jimmy Stewart and no Johnny Depp, Hollywood won't be as entertaining, frankly. Um, But then what the Oscars have become is just virtue signaling with absolutely no imagination or creativity or edge or um, you know truly subversive politics at all it's just become become um, corporate nonsense feminist canned feminism and you know, just totally insincere racial pandering but this year they really tried to keep a lid on all of that. They toned it down dramatically. And a lot of that, I think, was a lesson of Top Gun specifically. And Top Gun was a, obviously a huge moment for Hollywood. It was nominated at the Oscars this year. One of the most successful movies ever. So certainly one of the most successful movies in years that proved people uh, love patriotic, um, high octane, theater going, you know, big screen fair, stuff that makes you get your butt in the theater, um, that kind of thing. And so they've changed the Oscars into mass media again. Their ratings went up. Um, they'll never have the ratings that they used to have. But I basically just want to open it up to the group and and say um, this, if we combine this with a lot of the other segments we've done with the fact that the left is now basically anti-free speech, with the fact that the left um, is now shouting down judges, um, is this possible? You know, can, can you five years from now, 10 years from now, um, imagine the Oscars being able to keep a lid on it? Um, will Stanford ever go back to a, a, a better institution? Uh, will the left ever return to supporting the free press? Uh, I know there's a big question, but I really think the Oscars raised it because some of those executives know they're leaving a whole lot of money on the table. 
Um, so that's an interesting question. I think there are two questions there, Emily. One is, can we have a popular, truly popular culture? Um, I'm not sure that's possible in the digital age. I mean, as you've observed uh, so many times in print um, and elsewhere, that the, we are fractured, right? Pop, quote unquote, pop culture now is fractured. Um, people, we find our own little rabbit holes. Um, and that that has been one of the transformations of the internet age, right? Has been to, there isn't, there isn't like the equivalent of, you know, a Muhammad Ali fight anymore in our culture. Even the things that are quote unquote popular are still not making the kind of universal ratings uh, that, that they once did. So that's an underlying, um, I think, shift that has little to do with politics and more to do with technology. Um, but the other is, the other point is more political, which is, um, you know, whether or not we've reached this peak woke, whether the backlash uh, has, has if it's a, if it's gotten them to, to make it a sprinkle rather than the cake, as you said, um, is it successful? And and I would say completely not just as in all these institutions, what you have is institutional takeover, right? So if you actually look at the underlying choices the Academy is making in terms of selecting movies, um, those choices are getting more and more woke. They're getting more concerned about, you know, the racial and and sex makeup of of the selections of the movies and so on. Um, I saw a tweet that apparently the the major screenwriting software now. Uh, I think this is from Yerk P on Twitter, but um, the the major screenwriting software now has a button to analyze um, the various ethnic and sexual characteristics of your characters and how much dialogue they get, which is obviously in response to the studios demanding, you know, X percentage of the lines coming from these kinds of characters, right? Um, so actually the underlying product is institutionally becoming more woke, not less woke, uh, but you may see a little bit less for a few years of that kind of overt uh, political woke signaling on the top as sprinkles, but the cake is in this analogy is actually becoming more woke, not less institutionally. And I think that's why it's it's really foolish for, um, for us to sit back, not just with regard to Hollywood, but with regard to all these institutions to sit back and sort of, um, you know, sit on our laurels and say, well, we're winning these fights. We're winning these fights. Um, you know, we were winning the gay marriage fight. And by the way, I mean, conservatives, I was actually against it at the time I was in college, but, um, you know, institutionally, you can, you can have this backlash. This is how a lot of these social issues have functioned. There's this enormous, you know, sort of radical radicalization on an issue. There's a backlash. There's kind of a plateauing in which some minor skirmishes are won by the right. And then institutionally and generationally, the, the, you know, the quote unquote right position becomes the norm. And then this is the cycle that, you know, conservatives are so frustrated with. That's, that's how, you know, conservatism became progressivism driving the speed limit. Um, and so I think the same dynamic is at work here. So it'd be really foolish to think that it's quote unquote peak woke. Well, I, I, I don't have a ton to say here, to be honest with you. I didn't watch a minute of the Oscars. Like I, I honestly couldn't even tell you the last time I watched a minute of the, of the Academy Awards. Well, once upon a time, I did follow this stuff relatively closely. Um, I, I, I couldn't tell you exactly when I saw following it as closely as I do now. Um, what I can say is, speaking of the Academy o Awards, you know, famously there was the Chris Rock Will Smith kerfuffle, 
um, uh, the slap heard around the world at the Academy Awards last year. I did just recently finish watching Chris Rock's Netflix special uh, where he unloads on, on on Will Smith, probably the most vehemently he has done far, which was kind of cool to see. I feel like we covered that at the time that that happened a year ago, although I don't remember what our, what our core takeaway was. Um, to Inez's point about people- I think Wolf, Rachel was really supportive. She was supportive of the slap? I, I think Rachel yeah, generally airs on the side of violence. <laughs> yes, uh, that is definitely our Julie departed colleague, the notoriously violent Rachel Rachel Bovard. Um, but I, I think just real quick um, to Emily's, or excuse me, to Inez's point about peak woke. I, I, I mean, yeah, we should be hesitant to say like this is the peak in general because you know we know it, it, it typically always, at least often, seems to get worse. Um, you know, sometimes it, it it does seem like we have to like really kind of dig our feet into the sand and say this is a turning point. And that has been my feel, like my visceral outrage of what happened to Judge Duncan at, at Stanford Law School in particular there. But but I agree with you, Inez. We should be typically very reluctant to say that th this is the peak because it, it really does oftentimes just get a lot worse from there. Yeah, and it's in part because the institutions continue perpetuating every single generation a worse and worse uh, citizen, essentially, from the perspective of upholding the values, principles, and traditions that uh, this country was built on. Uh, I will say, if we were looking for, you know, what's kind of the bullish, what are the bullish signals here? Uh, we can look at Vanguard, for example, backing off on ESG and Larry Fink, you know, has certainly been taken aback by the backlash from you know, various states, for example, pulling their funds from the likes of a BlackRock and, you know, an increasingly popular backlash against it in conservative media and elsewhere since Netflix was invoked. Obviously, Netflix has kind of taken a stand against those employees who have opposed it for the thought crimes of platforming the likes of a Dave Chappelle. So you, you can point to a couple instances like this. Uh, admittedly, also, I didn't watch the Oscars. I watched none of these shows uh, in no small part because of the politics that's uh, inherent to them. But there does seem to be an, an increasing recognition that, oh, you know, the other 50% of the country is actually kind of awake and upset at us. And that is leaving money in the table. So maybe market forces to some extent can moderate at least how overt all of these institutions are in their radicalism. Maybe some of them will be capitalistic enough to say, even though I disagree uh, with you know some kind of content that's going to be put out there, I see that there is a market for it and that it does resonate with some people uh, and they'll make a profit, a hefty profit from it. But whether or not those in our government uh, will see there being a profit to it, uh, I think is very questionable. And I think this whole notion of peak woke, and there's been a whole, there's almost like a new genre of peak woke with so many articles that have been written about it. Uh, I think you have to ask yourself, okay, who is going to be running these institutions to dictate that they are not going to be increasingly woke? And all the institutions remain enthralled to these very ideologues. And the younger generation is significantly more radicalized than the older generation, as we've seen, for example, like in the battles in the New York Times newsroom, those battles are playing out everywhere. And it's the Stanford Law DEI administrators who are winning out, I think, in that struggle. So maybe there will be a pendulum swinging back, but I can only think that the Overton window just continues shifting further and further to one side, and it's in the wrong direction. With that, uh, happy to turn it over for our final thoughts. 
Well, I can just add quickly to this discussion because one of the bigger things, and I, I used this Nietzsche quote at the last NatCon um, about how, you know, we're basically without the values of Christianity in a society. And he really means God um, and Judeo-Christianity in general. We're like floating out on the open ocean and his character and the gay science says is very excited by this. It feels exhilarated by this. Um, but in general, when we think about something hitting a peak, peak wokeness, um, well, wokeness is very much a postmodern um, creation. And, you know, the, the only way to, I think, really ever be confident that we've reached peak wokeness um, is if the kind of foundation, a consensus foundation of morality were to be restored. And I have absolutely no <laughs> reason to believe that's the case. I don't think any of us do. Um, and I'm not saying that's impossible, but at best, you know, that's a long way off. And when Inez mentioned being sort of at odds with folks in the IDW world, um, I think that's been a case for a lot of people sort of looking at Sam Harris and, and others and saying, what really do we have in common? You know, maybe we're generally supportive of free speech, but um, are you all you know, kind of involved in, in poisoning the well too um, in different ways? And I think these are, are valid questions that spring from that fundamental difference. Um, you know, the, the foundations, and I didn't mean to speak for Inez there, that's just my thoughts on, on that. Um, so I, I think we're gonna be floating on that open sea um, until, unless there's the this, this sort of boomerang um, where everyone can kind of come back to a place of humanity, but we're going to a different direction where we're tr our technology is taking us further and further away from what it means to be a human being, um, at least superficially. It's, it's dragging us in our daily lives towards things like assisted suicide, towards things like artificial wombs for mass use, for things towards things that just make us uh, more and more divorced from our true human nature. And as that happens, uh, wokeness probably has yet to peak. Yeah, just to follow up on what Emily said, I mean, I think um, it's it's foolish to to exactly um, to to imagine that there's any kind of foundation that's going to be restored. And really, it's hard to imagine on what basis it would be. And and therefore, this is unlikely to to get get any better any better as opposed to worse anytime soon. Um, you know, especially and just to get into the the on the ground thing, you know, for example, pick any institution, right? You are more likely this year than you were last year if you're a mother um, with a a um, child who is questioning her her sex, right? You are more likely to be unable to find a pediatrician who will not affirm will not affirm the delusional you know ideas of your child about changing sex than you were last year. And likely next year, you'll find even fewer pediatricians who are unwilling to affirm the fake gender of your child, right? And so that's not peak woke, right? That's just, uh, uh you know, that's just a a um, superficial pullback. Um, I think we'd be amiss not to talk about, and and Ben touched it on it a little bit. We'd be amiss not to talk about on this episode the <laughs> potential for the SVB bailouts, right? Um. We have Joe Biden promising uh, to to make sure that this is not, quote unquote, coming from taxpayer money. Um, he said, I think, in, on a tweet and, and uh, in a statement said no losses. 
uh, will be, um, and I want, this is an important point, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Biden said, let me repeat that, no losses will be borne by the taxpayers. Instead, the money will come from the fees that banks pay into the deposit insurance fund. Uh, that appears to be a bunch of crap, frankly. Um, the deposit insurance fund does not have anywhere near uh, enough liquidity to cover depositors. And this is coming from an economist at the Heritage Foundation. Um, and and frankly, and this guy says, if, if it did, frankly, if it did, um, the Federal Reserve would not have to announce an emergency lending fund to meet that demand. There's no way around the reality that taxpayers are on the hook here. So we are right back to 2008. We were talking about bailing out banks with taxpayer money. Um, you know, the, the fundamental unfairness of that launched the Tea Party. We already are at a, a, a populist boil in America. Um, I think this is likely to to be a really important issue, both for the Democratic and for the Republican parties. It's likely to separate um, some of their more populist wings from the, the sort of centrists um, and the establishment. Um, and then finally, there's the failure of SVB itself, um, which the, the Wall Street Journal was very bold on this, uh, bolder than they they generally are, I think. Um, <clears throat> so they're asking about SVB, if, whether it was a regulatory failure, they say perhaps. Um, but they also placed a lot of the blame on essentially ESG and on uh, diversity focus at the bank, right? They say, um, quote, I'm not saying 12 white men on the board would have avoided this mess but the company may have been distracted by diversity demands. Um, that's, again, from the Wall Street Journal, which is generally cautious about these things. I think that's a really strong statement that they made worth worth looking into. So um, uh, with that, I'll, I guess I'll wrap up my final thoughts. And I think we just, this, this is probably an issue we're going to be talking about the next uh, episode and probably the next few weeks. I think it is going to to become a, an important political issue because it hits on exactly the unfairness of the system and who gets bailed out and who doesn't for their mistakes. Yeah, and it's worth noting just briefly this idea that the taxpayers aren't going to pay for this. Okay, if the banks are assessed these fees ultimately to cover, you know, uninsured depositors at a whole slew of institutions. Uh, who do those fees from the banks ultimately get, get passed on to? Of course, they get passed on to the customers, which probably in the end of the day is all of us. It's everyone. So, um, you know, it's a sleight of hand here, a predictable sleight of hand. Obviously, SVB also has kind of the populist politics wrapped up in it in particular because we're talking about Silicon Valley startups in many, though not exclusive cases. Uh, most of the kind of startups that they back, like SVB, uh, presumably share the same kind of politics that SVB seem to espouse. Uh, and then you have the ties, of course, to uh, senior management or board members that are political in nature as well. So I think we are absolutely going to see again, uh, I don't know if it's going to be Tea Party-like, and it's going to be interesting to see the evolution of populism in this country from Tea Party to whatever is going to ultimately supplant it with respect to these de facto bailouts. And, you know, the framing of not these are not bailouts is essentially rooted in the idea that, well, look, you know, the equity holders are getting bailed, are not are going to get wiped out in the case of SVB and management is going to be forced to leave, et cetera. But nevertheless, of course, those uninsured depositors are going to be covered at least at SVB and I guess Signature Bank as well, and perhaps other ones as well. But to the extent there really is contagion in the financial system, it is going to be fascinating to see where the American people are and then where the Republican Party is. And 
you know, the Republican Party itself, the establishment of the party, has not really come out strongly one way or the other on this. Um, you know, there's a statement from the uh, head Republican uh, Banking Committee or Financial Services uh, Committee member basically saying this was the first, you know, Twitter or bank run and kind of in the Twitter age, essentially, I believe, paraphrasing it. Um, but there was no kind of response of like, well, why did this institution fail? Uh, where were the regulators in this institution? Um, what was the responsibility of uh, you know, management and others? And ultimately, what is this going to mean for depositors going forward? Are they going to up the limits for FDIC insurance and beyond? And you know, this gets to a okay, if whatever the East Palestine version of SVB was collapsing, would it get would its uninsured depositors and analog there get treated the same way? I think we're going to see a lot of these contrasts being drawn. But I do wonder where the Republican Party is going to stand versus where the voters are going to stand. And I think we may see a big chasm on this issue as well, with Republican voters sounding a lot more like, say, a Thomas Massey than Republicans in Congress are going to sound. So I guess I come back in a final thought that is, as a spoiler alert, is probably not going to have a singular conclusion to what is kind of like the great paradoxes, I think, of, of, of what NACONs are trying to solve. But I'm not sure that we've kind of arrived in a, on a singular kind of conclusion yet, which is what to do about this whole just horrible, horrible complex where, <clears throat> excuse me, where these terrible, terrible institutions um, as the case may be here, institutions of higher education are controlled by petty, woke tyrants, but folks on even our side feel a need, and that need is oftentimes justified to attend those institutions to try to enter um, you, know, you know the corridors of power, wherever those wherever those pet those powerful corridors might be to well, to make money for their family and and all of that. And, I really don't have kind of a, a a grand answer to this. I'm obviously kind of now thinking yet again about what happened at Stanford Law School recently. Here, I, I I guess I continue to kind of come back to the to the same playbook. I mean, part of this is you know is Inez's bread and butter. You know, we have to kind of defund the higher education cabal of every of every penny of taxpayer money that we possibly can. You know, and and we have to kind of more generally use any other genuinely available means of political power. I mean, as, as the case may be for Stanford Law School, that's that's in California. I'm not particularly optimistic, to put it mildly, about the California state legislature doing anything in this particular case. But, you know, if this were to have happened in a slightly more hospitable and red state, you know, maybe there was some sort of kind of statutory avenue for kind of punishing Stanford Law School. Um, you know, on the date that we're recording this, which is Tuesday, March 14th, you know, here where I live in Florida, news broke that Governor DeSantis had revoked the liquor license of the Hyatt Regency Hotel in downtown Miami for having a uh, a drag show recently that children were there for. I mean, and that's kind of what I have in mind. And this, you know, this very much kind of fits kind of the broader kind of paradigm of what I oftentimes refer to as rewarding friends and punishing enemies within the confines of the rule of law. But all of that and, you know, yes, obviously we need to do the best we can to try to kind of recapture lost institutions, Chris Rufo style, New College of Florida. I, 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 I agree with all of that, but, you know, it really is kind of an uphill slog. And that's why I say it's a bit of a paradox because, um, you know, uh, there's just really no obvious, clear, singular path forward 
towards getting towards a point of civilizational sanity because unfortunately these credentialing institutions still mean a lot and I, I i truly and earnestly wish that we were in a world where they meant less where the value of of a paper diploma that said stanford law school juris doctor meant less than it does but that kind of just is kind of unfortunately the reality that we are so you know like i said i'm not like building up towards a grand conclusion here i guess at a bare minimum though just kind of fodder and 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 food for for continuing thought in the hopes that one day we may arrive at something more concretely resembling a path forward well on that note on behalf of inez emily and josh thanks for tuning in i'm ben weingarten and we'll see you at the next NACON squad